So several years ago, uh, my wife Krista and I um, <clears throat> were poking around the shops in Kennebunkport, Maine. Anyone been to Kennebunkport, Maine? It is a great spot. If you've never been there, it's, it's just a really cool location. It's this quiet, quaint seaside town. And we were poking around the shops there this one day. And we're strolling along and we stumble upon this one place. And we walk in and the walls, even the ceiling of this place just lined with amazing pieces of pottery hanging from everywhere. Every tabletop uh, just covered with, uh, stacked with these amazing pieces of pottery. And then right in the middle of the shop, kind of set back, was this guy at his wheel. And he's sitting there and he's sculpting this mug. And I walk over and I started chit-chatting with him and we got into this little conversation, but I just watched him turn this lump of clay into something useful into something beautiful. And I was so impressed, we bought this mug. Here it is. This is the mug we bought this, that particular day. And uh, I like it. I think it's a really cool mug. Uh, now this used to be just an inconsequential lump of clay. But now it is this. With skill, with care, this potter had a vision for what that clay would become. Uh, he wanted it to look a certain way. He wanted the handle to be curved just like this. He wanted it to have these particular markings. He wanted the body of the mug to be designed just so with these swirly sort of patterns as he glazed it. He wanted it to be covered over with this brown metallic sort of glaze with this other glaze dripping over the side. He wanted the inside of the mug to be speckled just the way that it is. Everything about this mug was created by design, intentionally uh, designed and crafted to look exactly like that. Now the potter shaping this clay into the mug is such an image, uh, such a picture of what we've seen so far in Jesus' sermon on the plain. Over the last little bit, we've been working our way systematically through Luke's Gospel. The last few weeks, we've been in His sermon on the plain. And isn't that what we found so far in this sermon? Isn't it so saturated with Jesus describing kingdom life, what life in the kingdom is like? Isn't it so loaded with Jesus caring for His people, shaping His people through giving them this teaching that's going to transform them? Now the truth is, Jesus cares about who you are and He cares about who you are becoming. This is one of the emphases, one of the effects of this sermon that Jesus is preaching. He cares, He desires to shape you into this person who honors God, this person who is, has a heart that's just so ingrained with the Beatitudes, a person who loves even your enemies, a person who by His grace will shake this world for the glory of Jesus Christ, a person whose mind and heart and character is so transformed that other people looking on just say, whoa, what is up with them? They love each other. They don't respond to difficult life circumstances the way other people do. They don't treat other people with the same pride that I see other people using. They, don't, they love each other. It's so genuine. Can you believe it? Look at that. What is up with them? Jesus is preaching this sermon. Longing to shape His people. And He is showing us what life in the kingdom is like. And as a believer, as one of God's people, don't you just long to be shaped by Jesus Christ like this? Don't you just long to hear the words of this sermon and have them just soak into your soul and change you? 
Well, Jesus' sermon continues His work of shaping us into these God-fearing, God-honoring, world-shaking, enemy-loving people continues. Jesus is quick to point out to us that His people are going to have a particular look. That His kingdom is going to have a particular shape. And here, Jesus shapes us to be kingdom people. So let's jump right back into Jesus' sermon on the plain. Luke chapter 6, starting verse 37. Luke chapter 6, 37-42. If you have one of these Bibles that's in one of the baskets, it's on page 560 and 561. Luke chapter 6, verses 37 and following. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he's fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. So Jesus, it's His desire to shape us. And that's what these words do. Right off the bat, this portion of the sermon on the plane lets us know that Jesus is shaping us to be merciful. Now remember, this is one sermon, the sermon on the plane. So it would have flowed naturally. It wouldn't have been broken up, which is what we have to do when we preach it over a series of weeks. With that in mind, verses 37 and 38 actually expand the teaching of verse 36, which tells us to be merciful. Verse 36 says, Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Now the disciples are told to follow God's example of mercy. God the Father, His mercy is the standard that we strive toward. It is the the model that we obey. Jesus doesn't stop by saying, guys, love your enemies. Be merciful as your Father. As He continues on, He fleshes out for us what the merciful treatment of other people actually looks like. So verse verse 37 kicks off with these four commands. Two of them are stated negatively. Two of them are stated positively. And as we look at these commands, we will understand what type of people Jesus is calling us to be when He tells us to be merciful. The first two commands teach us that mercy neither judges nor condemns. Mercy doesn't judge and mercy does not condemn. The text says, Judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Now those commands seem pretty clear, but I think they're oftentimes uh, misunderstood. Now I remember a time in my life, and and this situation has happened many times since, but I remember this one specific time, I was in a challenging set of circumstances, but one that is pretty commonplace for believers, I think. I know many of you have been here too, and uh, here's what was up. My my friend, who is a believer... Um, was, was openly walking away from the Lord. He was caught in sin. He was embracing it. He was unapologetically just spurning the Lord's direction. And I saw him going down this route and 
the Lord burdened my heart for it. So I started praying. And with as much uh, grace and mercy that the Lord would give me, I went up and just started talking to Him about it. We talked. I actually think we had a really healthy conversation uh, by the grace of God. But how many times does that situation crop up and the response you receive is, hey, don't judge me. And this verse gets quoted. Listen, don't judge me. Some of you have said it to other people. Don't judge me, All right. Some of you have heard it said to you, don't judge me when you're just clearly caring for somebody else's well-being. Is that what Jesus means when He commands us not to judge? Does Jesus mean that we don't speak a word of truth into each other's lives? Does Jesus mean that we have to be passive observers watching our brothers and sisters meander down these wayward paths doing nothing? Do these commands give us an excuse to be apathetic about uh, someone's spiritual condition? Just throwing our hands in the air saying, well, I can't judge, so I guess I can't really say or do anything to help move this person closer to Christ. Does this command give us an excuse to shy away from those hard conversations about sin? No. Of course they don't. That's not what Jesus means here. The verse is so misquoted and, 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 and misunderstood. People, Here's the thing. People don't like it when you, any sort of comment is made on their own morality. People don't like it. It doesn't rub up against them well. We live in this pluralistic culture where truth is relative. What works for you works for you and that's great. What works for me works for me and that's okay too. Just don't disrupting it by telling me that my standard of truth doesn't line up with some other standard of truth that's above all of us. But as God's people, we denounce this idea that truth is relative. It is not. We confess. We have absolute truth and the authority of God's Word. So when our lives don't sync with what God's Word is saying, there's a problem. And when that happens, the Bible clarifies there is certainly a place for healthy discussion about sin and life and morality. In fact, we're told to speak the truth to one another. Isn't that what Paul says in the book of Ephesians chapter 4? Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is our head, into Christ. And this practice of Loving each other by engaging in healthy dialogue about truth. It's so good for us. It matures us. It strengthens us in the faith. It helps us not to wander down those paths. So what Jesus is teaching affirms that we speak the truth in love, but when you take away the love, we just have pointing out each other's faults and each other's shortcomings. And that's just judgment and it's harmful. And it's not good for us. The book of Proverbs also says, iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Through speaking the truth in love, providing accountability, walking alongside each other, helping each other, it's so good for us. It's one of the best parts of the local church when uh, some like-minded brother or sister who really knows you comes alongside you and lovingly just says, like, hey, I see you're... you're you're wandering into sin here. I love you. Let me put my arm around you and help you honor Christ more and more day by day. It's one of the great benefits of the local church. Jesus Himself regularly brings sin to light when He sees it in someone else's heart. Just look at verse 42. 
when he's talking about the man with the big plank in his eye, he denounces him, says, you hypocrite. And isn't that the example we see take place throughout Jesus' time on earth when he sees hypocrisy in someone's heart, when he sees sin there, and the person is just unapologetic, he brings it to light. So Jesus is not calling us to this absolute tolerance. Not to tolerate sin in our own hearts. Not to tolerate sin in our church. He's not saying stop discerning sin. Stop this, uh, this healthy assessment of, of, of noticing sin in one another and helping each other. That is not it. So what does Jesus mean when He commands us not to judge and not to condemn? Well, he's, look, he's talking about someone who looks upon a guilty person, sees that guilt, points out that guilt, and shows no benevolence whatsoever. Someone who is happy to expose someone else's shortcomings, holding no care in their heart for the person, having this attitude completely void of compassion. What Jesus is condemning here is this approach to people that pushes them down further, deeper into this pit of guilt rather than reaching over, extending a hand, helping them up, and then moving them closer to Christ. And we know those people, don't we? We've all come, come across them. We interact with them all the time. The, that person who, the whole time you're with them, it feels like they're just picking you apart. And the whole time you're talking to them, it's like you're walking on eggshells because you don't want to say or do the wrong thing because they're, they're so ready to pounce at any moment, so quick to judge and to condemn. And it's not this loving correction. It's this condemning accusation. And when you're in the presence of those people, it's almost as if the very air they're breathing is this strict uh, judgmentalism, so much so that there's just no room in the air around them for grace. You know those people. None of us are new to life. We talk to those people every day, but Jesus is saying, don't be that person. Jesus is saying, don't be that person. I don't want that for you. I'm shaping you to be a person whose heart flows over with mercy for others, even when you're having tough conversations about sin and life. It's not good for you to be harsh and unloving and judgmental. I don't want it for you. Here's what happens when we judge and when we condemn. Leaving mercy, grace, compassion, genuine care for someone's well-being behind. We are evidencing self-righteousness. Isn't that what's bubbling up in our hearts in those moments? Turn with me to Luke chapter 18. A couple chapters over. Luke 18, starting in verse 9. Jesus is speaking here. <clears throat> Luke 18, 9 and following. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. What an introduction that is. How would you like to get mentioned, referenced in the Bible with that descriptor of your character? Uh, so here's the parable. Jesus is telling this parable. Verse 10 and following. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank You that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. 
But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. There's a lot going on in that parable. I'm just going to ask you one question. What did the Pharisee do in the parable? What was going on in the Pharisee when he comes before the Lord and he surveys the landscape, sees all these other people that he deemed more sinful than himself, and his eyes land on this a sinful tax collector. What was going on there? What did he do? He judged. He condemned the tax collector, believing him to be especially low, believing himself to be especially high. And that condemnation, that judgment, is completely connected to his own self-righteousness. Jesus is, I mean, he's telling the parable to people who are trusting in themselves that they themselves are righteous and are therefore treating others with contempt. Judgment, uh, condemnation, doing that to others, it's evidence that self-righteousness is rooted in your heart. It's saying, I'm something that you are not. I'm up here, you're down there, so I'm going to judge you. And that's okay. In preaching the sermon, Jesus is looking to weed this kind of self-righteous Pharisaism out of our hearts so that unlike this Pharisee, we can come up against, rub shoulders with uh, other people who might be sinners, and we don't look down on them condemningly. As it relates to the parable, as it relates to the kingdom, Jesus makes it clear he would prefer more tax collectors and fewer Pharisees. So he's taking these careful measures to preach the sermon to shape us. So judging, condemning, it evidences the self-righteousness. It's also clear that when we judge, when we condemn, we are doing what only God can do. We are putting ourselves in the place of God. When we judge, when we condemn, uh, we are doing what only God has the right, the power, the authority to do, to judge another person. Biblical scholar John Goldengay says this, the biggest difference between God and us is that God doesn't think He's us. The biggest difference between God and us is that God doesn't think He's us. Now, of course, the statement's incomplete, right? I mean, the differences between us and God are absolute. He's God. Everything else in all of creation is fully not God. Um, But with all of those insufficiencies considered, there's something that rings true about the statement. It assumes God doesn't think He's us. He's not trying to fill our role. But it infers that we oftentimes think we're God. Trying to do what only God is designed to do. It comments on our propensity to take up the role of God ourselves. To place ourselves in His position. In this area of condemning and judging other people is one of those areas, isn't it? Though God is the authority alone to judge other people, we happily take up that work on His behalf. We think our word is final. We think our opinions are infallibly right. We think our ways are better and higher, and they just simply are not. Yet in spite of it, we run around issuing these condemning judgments on other people when God is the one who justly judges. So we're told not to judge not to condemn. Jesus does not want that for us. Rather, He's shaping us to be a people of mercy. He's shaping us to be merciful. And we know that mercy doesn't mean judgment. It doesn't mean condemnation. But it does mean forgiveness and giving. 
Mercy does forgive and it gives. The text says, forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. Forgiveness and generosity are two important aspects of mercy. Now, forgiveness implies that someone has wronged you, that someone has committed some sin against you. And our concept of forgiveness is sometimes skewed. Sometimes we think if we forgive someone, we have to almost pretend like this didn't just take place, like we weren't just really wronged. Forgiveness doesn't mean we minimize the wrongdoing. Forgiveness doesn't mean we have to imagine this alternate reality in which this person is not guilty when they are, in fact, really, truly guilty. Instead, forgiveness is this heart condition. Oftentimes, when we are wronged, we hold people prisoner in our hearts, never showing grace, never letting go of the, of, of the words or the actions or the attitudes, uh, enslaving them in our hearts because of the past, uh, never quite having right, healthy feelings towards that person ever again. Instead, forgiveness is in your heart freeing them from this jail of resentment and harboring uh, bad feelings and holding a grudge. Forgiveness is opening that cage door regardless of whether retribution has been received or an apology has ever been offered. When you forgive, you're pardoning that person in your heart by the grace of God, not holding a grudge. You're not harboring those bad feelings. You're not hanging on to that resentment, you are trusting that person to the God of justice rather than judging, convicting, sentencing them yourself in your own heart. This is the merciful thing to do. And God, Jesus, wants it to be a mark of His people. Let me give you an example of forgiveness. I have a friend who is an elementary school teacher. And um, there was a fight in the school. Two kids went at it started beating each other up, uh, which is not necessarily noteworthy. Unfortunately, that stuff happens, I'm sure, every day in schools. Um, but this was noteworthy. One of the kids, in response, wrote an apology letter to the other kid. And the letter circulated among all the teachers, the faculty, the staff. Somehow, um, she showed it to me, and I said, can I have a copy? Because that's going to make a great sermon illustration someday. So here it is. This letter from one kid to another after they just got done beating each other up. Great example of forgiveness. To Vaughn, the dork. I'm very sorry that I was so mean to you, but I had every right to because you were acting like a stupid, stinking little jerk. But I'm sorry for you because I now know that you are a dork and I feel so bad for you because you will never make it in life. And it's signed off with the name Vaughn in a circle with a line through it. I mean, true forgiveness. What, a, what an apology. What a letter, right? Obviously, it is a terrible example of forgiveness. Um, clearly, the kid wrote the letter because his teacher made him to, not because he felt bad or, or, or felt remorse or, or had true forgiveness in his heart towards this other person and was letting it go. None of that was taking place. He wrote it because he had to. Here's the point. How often do our expressions of forgiveness look like that letter? It might not be as overtly biting and negative and as in-your-face rude, but how often do we forgive just at a duty obligation when there's no heart change towards someone? 
Guys, we aren't a people who forgive at a duty or obligation. We are a people who forgive because we have been forgiven. Ephesians chapter 4 says, Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. We know true forgiveness because we have received it from the Almighty God who looked down on us in all his holiness and his splendor looked down on us when we were his enemies, when we were wallowing in the filth and the mire of our own sin, when we were shaking our fist at him. And he said, I love you. And I'm sending my son to die on this cross to pay the penalty for your sin. I'm going to raise him up so that if you place faith in him, you might be forgiven regardless of all this. I love you. I'm going to forgive you. It's unconditional. You'll never experience anything like the forgiveness that I'm going to shower upon you that's going to wash over you. I'm giving you a new heart. I'm washing you clean. You're forgiven. You're going to stand before me in eternity in my presence, in my holy presence, worshiping, clean, forgiven. Can you believe it? Guys, we know that personally. So when Jesus commands us to forgive, when that one word, that one command, that imperative leaves his lips, forgive. Can't you just feel the hands of the master potter shaping you into a more beautiful vessel, making you more like his son Jesus, teaching you to treat other people the way the God of heaven has treated you? And in true Jesus fashion, he pushes the radicality of that command to the very max. He says, yes, forgive, but I'm going to call you to go a step further and give. Be generous. Show people generosity. If you see a need, even if it's a need in someone who's hostile towards you, someone who's been an enemy of sorts, someone who you don't get along with, if you see that need, meet it generously. Jesus is reiterating what we just went over a few weeks ago. This previous passage in this Sermon on the Plain, Luke chapter 6, verses 27-31. to But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. Jesus is calling us to this sacrificial approach to people. Sure, I'll take something that I have that I was counting on and I will give it to you gladly. And as He shapes us, He communicates to us that mercy, this mercy that He's calling us to, includes that sort of selfless generosity. And you know what? God sees and He honors how we respond to what Jesus has just preached to us. We're told that if you don't judge, you won't be judged. If you don't condemn, you won't be condemned. If you forgive, you will be forgiven. If you give, it will be given to you. In other words, the way God will deal with you is in some way influenced by the way you deal with others. Now we know in eternity, we are judged based upon our standing with God through Jesus Christ. If you know Him, if you have confessed Him, if you place faith in Him as Lord and Savior by grace, you are saved. If you have not done that, you won't be. That is the truth of the Gospel. So the presence of the Gospel in our hearts dictates eternity for us. Not anything we could ever do in this life, good or bad. But how God deals with people in life is influenced, at least in some measure, in some way by how you deal with others. That's the general principle here. Verse 38 says, 
For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. The principle means that God sees the judgmental and He's prepared to judge them accordingly so we don't have to. It means that we don't have to show mercy to people expecting some reward in return from them or expecting praise from other people because the God of heaven sees that. We're not motivated by receiving things back. We're we're showing mercy to people because we love Jesus Christ. And we know that God sees those acts of mercy and He is delighted to respond to them. In fact, Jesus says, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. Now picture these two people, they're in a marketplace, and uh, one is buying grain, the other is selling it. And the seller takes this measure, fills it up with grain, presses it down, shakes it out, getting rid of all the stuff, so only good grain is left, and he fills it up, presses it down, shakes it out, fills it up, presses it down, shakes it out, fills it up, presses it down, shakes it out, until that measure is full. And the image we have here is that it's not just full, it's overflowingly full. The one who obeys Jesus' words here, not judging, not condemning, forgiving, giving, showing mercy to others, is one who receives an overflowingly full measure of mercy and forgiveness placed into your lap by God. It's not a prosperity gospel. It's incredibly clear that the blessings here are not, the blessings in view here are not physical, worldly things. So don't read this and expect that. Uh, your rent, your rent money is going to just start magically coming in the, in the mail every week and that the car you want is just going to appear and God's just going to shower with you with all these physical worldly things. It's, that's not what's in view. God has a far greater blessing in view. It is His mercy. As you show mercy to other people, God's going to be merciful to you. It brought me back to um, a time when uh, my wife and I were in the hospital with one of our kids. And it was a challenging situation as first-time parents. We were just freaking out. You know, every little thing's a big deal. But we were in the ER for a couple of days, and I just remember thinking, Lord, this stinks. This is really not fun. I'm worried. I'm, I'm torn up. And I looked back on it, and the presence of God, and, and, and honestly, the way things worked out, it just could not have been more clear that God was being so merciful to us in a difficult situation. God will pour His mercy out into your life. It means His delight in you. His pleasure in your transforming character results in this overflow of mercy and forgiveness from God to you. So, it is a joy, it is our blessing that Jesus shapes us to be kingdom people. And since Jesus shapes us not to judge, not to condemn, but to forgive and to give, to be merciful, we see a clear direction in the text to take a good hard look at our own hearts. We see that Jesus doesn't only shape us to be merciful, He shapes us to be introspective. Look at verses 41 and 42. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, Let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. So this judgmentalism that Jesus just warned us against is illustrated in this scenario. Uh, this, This person sees a speck in his brother's eye and we're talking a minuscule piece of wood. Um, a small object, a fleck of sawdust, just 
tiny. And the whole time he's not noticing, he's got this plank in his own eye. And that word plank is actually referencing this big, thick, solid beam used in, in constructing a roof. And I think of, um, I'm not sure how many of you guys remember this, but several years ago there was this crazy ice storm in Western Mass. I remember it because I'm from there. And um, what was happening is this ice, just, it was just piling up on people's roofs and there was all kinds of structural damage. And I remember specifically because my mom's house was damaged and part of the repair process was taking this gigantic beam. I cannot even illustrate the size and the weight of this beam and, and replacing it, putting it back up in the roof. And this thing was the centerpiece keeping the entire roof in place. So these two pieces of wood are representing sin, shortcomings, things in, in people's hearts. But Jesus is intentionally making this contrast between this tiny fleck of sawdust and this gigantic heavy beam. The contrast could not be more clear or more great. So as readers, we look at it, we see the contrast, and we realize how ludicrous it is. When someone with this giant beam in their eye walks over comments on their friend's speck and says, let me take that out for you. But that is what happens. It so aptly describes us, doesn't it? This person goes so far as to remove his brother's speck before taking out his own plank. Jesus calls him a hypocrite. says, no, take out the plank. Once you're seen clearly, then go tend to your brother's speck. I mean, it's the Pharisee and the tax collector all over again. The Pharisee comments on this sinful tax collector all the while unaware that he's the one that's going to walk out unjustified. Unaware that his own self-righteousness, that the own, his own pride was a far greater issue than what this uh, tax collector was dealing with. He doesn't see it because he's so focused on the tax collector. And as you read these passages, isn't it almost as if you're reading the tablet of your own heart? Guys, I cannot help but read these passages and immediately identify with the Pharisee and with this man with the plank in his eye. The pattern Jesus suggests here is be introspective, deal with the sin in your own life, and then go help your brother. Yet I am so quick to discern sin in other people, so slow to see it in myself. I'm so quick to nitpick the specks in other people and I'm so slow to extract the own plank in my heart. I've been thinking about this and praying about it a lot this week. And it seems to me that every day I am coming up against this, uh, a situation when I have this decision to either uh, focus on someone's speck or, 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 or take care of my own being. Judge someone else's shortcoming or deal with the massive sin in my own life. And it crops up in so many areas of life. I'm sure it takes place here on a Sunday morning through uh, just maybe casual, hey, how's it going? And we throw those snide jabs at each other uh, that are worth nothing but tearing each other down. Uh, it happens in marriages. Uh, we've seen marriages just crumble away as husbands and wives just endlessly negatively critique each other without first taking a hard look at their own role in the issue or, or at their own heart. Friendships break apart because people are so consumed and concerned with the deficiencies of the other person rather than paying attention to their own weaknesses and so on and so on and so on. It just 
This is everywhere in our lives. And in response to this common trend in people which we've all dealt with, Jesus asks this rhetorical question in verse 42. How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that's in your own eye? Now the force of the question is to cause us as readers to just see how outrageously absurd that would be when we judge others before considering ourselves. But since we're all prone to that type of hypocrisy, we've all been there, we've all been the person with the plank, we've all been the Pharisee in some regard, Uh, since we're prone to it, it's appropriate to examine yourself, to consider your own heart, to be introspective, which is a little bit different for us because we know that the Gospel always tells us to take our eyes off of ourselves and to fix them on Christ. Redirecting our gaze always on Jesus first and foremost. In fact, the the ethics that Jesus gives us are always about take your eyes off yourself, consider the other person. Think of them first, think of yourself last. Put them up, put yourself low. Yet when it comes to this issue of indwelling sin, Jesus says, guys, it's appropriate. Take a look at your own heart before you go and judge someone else. Before you consider any, someone else, take a good, hard, introspective look at what is going on in your life. And let me just encourage you, pay close attention to what you find. If you think you're superior, if uh, you think you're more pious or more holy or more deserving or more noteworthy, a better Christian, more accomplished in some way, you're just not. And that might be evidence alone that there is a plank in your eye. That there's some sin indwelling you. The call is to not be like the Pharisee. Don't be like the person with the plank. Have wisdom in discerning what's going on in your own heart. Approach God. If we could only do this, if we could approach God and other people with the humility with the awareness of our need for the grace of Jesus Christ that the tax collector had. When standing far off, he wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. If we could have that sort of heart posture before people and God, what would the Lord do with our testimony? And there's still this place for helping your brother. That's how the the passage there ends. But let's pluck out the plank so we can see clearly and then from this position of clarity and humility we can go over and help our brother with his speck. So in preaching the sermon, Jesus is shaping us to be merciful people. He's shaping us to be introspective about our sin. And now He charges us to actually follow these instructions. Isn't that novel? I'm giving you this sermon. I'm teaching you these things about my kingdom. I want you to be this person who's like me and who honors me. Now, actually listen and live it out and obey and respond. Jesus shapes us to be a people who follow His instruction. Verse 39 and 40. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he's fully trained, will be like his teacher. So like verses 41 and 42, this illustration relates to sight, right? In the last one, we had this guy with a beam that was impairing his sight as he's 
looking down on other people. He's judging. Now, now getting caught in judgmentalism is like being blind, but also following someone who's blind. And Jesus is playing, placing this emphasis on Christ's followers actually responding to this instruction that He's giving us. He communicates it to us through this parable in verse 39. Now the parable asks two rhetorical questions. They're answered by a no and a yes, respectively. Can a blind man lead a blind man? No. Will they not both fall into a pit? Yes. Now as you know, the the weather's been beautiful, which means everybody, I'm sure you guys are included in that, have been outside as much as possible. Um, I'm I'm super blessed because Monday was my day off. And uh, it was awesome on Monday. So I got out. I went for a hike in the Blue Hills. Um, And it was great. It was a great time by myself. I was praying and reading Scripture and hiking. Um, And I was on this trail that was rocky. And it was, uh, I mean, it was covered in rocks. And there were down tree limbs and bushes and sticks and this, that, and the other. Obstacles all over the place, all along the path up the mountain. And um, it took some effort to, you know, go over and around things in order to keep moving forward. Now, I could not imagine trying to make my way up that trail being blind, but how ridiculous would it be if I then said, you know what, I can't do this because I can't see my way up the trail. You're blind? Okay, I'm going to follow you. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. Jesus is parabolically speaking to those people who are being led stating it's important that you guys don't follow someone who's blind. Someone, uh, follow someone who can see clearly. And there are good and there are bad leaders. The good leader, the one who sees clearly, who has clear vision, who can lead you well, who can guard you from the pitfalls along the way and, and bring you to your destination safely is Jesus. Following anyone who teaches anything contrary to what He is preaching to us in this sermon is following a bad leader. Following that person, we're told, will result in just a harrowing, harmful experience for you. The alternative to following Jesus is the equivalent of following a blind man who leads you into a pit. It's a powerful illustration. So Jesus is preaching us this sermon. He has showed you a path. It is a path that includes sacrificing your will and your natural approach to life. Uh, It is a difficult path that suggests a radical transformation of your character in this extreme way of dealing with people. But Jesus is the leader who sees. He's the one who can lead you well, lead you truly. The question you guys are dealing with now that we all have to respond to as we take in the text, will you follow Jesus? Are you going to follow His lead and actually do, live out, be, be saturated with the commands that He is putting before us as He preaches this sermon. Will you follow Jesus? Or will you find some, follow some other blind person down some other dangerous path? Because that's the alternative. The importance of following, trusting Jesus, listening, responding to Him as He shapes us into these merciful, merciful introspective people who actually follow His lead and do what He says and and delight to follow Him and walk with Him is also underscored in verse 40. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he's fully trained, will be like his teacher. Jesus is talking to His disciples about being disciples. His disciples will never be greater than Him. They'll never be higher uh, than Him. They won't be above Him. But if they follow Him, they can be like Him. 
Disciples of Jesus, though they're blind, they're trained up, they're given sight by their leader Jesus. They're, they're, they're brought along well. So be selective who you follow. Don't settle for a poor teacher, a poor leader. Don't put your hand on the shoulder of a blind man and say, okay, let's do it. Lead me. Follow Jesus. And one way of following Jesus is by taking heed of these commands that He has just taken all this care and creativity to preach to us. Be merciful. Don't judge. Don't condemn. Forgive. Give. Be introspective about your own sin. And here's the thing, guys. I'm not trying to preach just mere morality to you. Do this, do that. Don't be like this, be like that. That is not the Gospel. So let me just remind you that uh, Jesus' sermon does not end here with our text for today. Next week, we're going to round out uh, looking at this sermon. And what we will find is that Jesus' final words in the sermon are all about the heart. Our actions, our attitudes, these things Jesus is calling us to are all Uh, reflecting this condition of our heart. And Scripture tells us that apart from Christ, all of our hearts are blackened by sin. They are completely unable to manufacture good fruit like mercy and and forgiveness and humble introspection and Christ-likeness in ways that actually honor the Lord. Our hearts are too sinful for that. They won't do it. So if you're actually going to live out these commands that Jesus has just given us, you're going to need a new heart. And that's the Gospel. If, you're, if you've never confessed Jesus is Lord, if you've never looked on Him and looked at the cross and said, you died for my sins, I believe it, I, I repent, I confess, please come into my heart, I love you in faith and grace, I confess the Lordship of Jesus Christ. If you've never done that, entering into this relationship with Jesus, forgiven, washed clean, restored. Let today be the day. Call upon the name of the Lord. Receive this gift of a new heart. Receive the forgiveness. Let the Holy Spirit will enable you to actually follow Jesus in ways that make God Almighty happy and please Him. That is the call for you today. That is the starting point. Confess Christ if you've never made that decision. If you already belong to Jesus, these instructions today don't Um, affect your eternal standing. And you guys know that. You are His for eternity. They don't put you into or out of relationship with Him. Jesus purchased that relationship once and for all. And this is an important distinction. You are not working hard to be someone new. I hope that's clear. Take it in. Because it's easy to kind of go there when you hear Jesus commanding these things. You are not working hard to be someone new. Rather, Jesus Christ has already made you someone new. And now it's your joy to live out that new identity walking with Jesus as He continues to make you more like Him. Shaping you. Transforming your character. It is a joy. It's not a burden. Oftentimes we make it a burden. It's not. So today we sit under this sermon. We sit under Jesus' teaching. We know He has this desire to shape us. We know He loves us. We know He wants us to be merciful like Him and forgiving like Him and introspective like Him. And we know He wants us to actually respond and live this stuff out and follow Him. 
But then church ends today. You guys walk out this door and what? Back to business as usual? Or will you respond? Here's one way that you can respond. Just one. It's easy. When you get home today, get on your knees. Pray to God. Ask His Holy Spirit to search your heart. And to reveal, to bring to the surface these things that God is seeking to sanctify. Confess them to the Lord. Repent of your sin. Ask God to replace the judgmentalism in your heart with uh, forgiveness, the condemnation of others with generosity. Ask Him to make you more merciful in your dealings with other people. Pray that God would actually shape you into a kingdom person. Engaging life in Christ's kingdom as a well-formed vessel of mercy. Pray that Jesus would really truly shape you into a kingdom person. Jesus makes it clear that He cares about us. The effect that the sermon has is to shape His people to make us more Christ-like. How ridiculous would it be if when I walked into that shop and saw this potter on His wheel, if the lump of clay was constantly resisting, trying to wiggle off the wheel, trying to jump off the table, working as hard as he possibly could to stay a meaningless lump. I mean, it's so, it's so silly because, I mean, why? I mean, it's a ridiculous illustration to begin with, but it's silly. It's a silly idea. Yet we constantly are resisting the Lord's instruction. Guys, don't resist. You're on the wheel. He's molding you. He's loving you. He's shaping you. He's got such a clear vision for who He wants you to be in this life. Don't resist. Listen. Respond with obedience. Know that Jesus is shaping you to be a kingdom person. Jesus is shaping you to be a kingdom person. Please pray with me. Father, we love You so much. and We thank You for Your Son. We thank You that He humbled Himself to walk on this earth, on our behalf, and to suffer for us. We thank You that um, He preached this sermon. And I pray, God, that Your Holy Spirit would continue to stir up our hearts and just bring it up in our minds. Help us, Lord, to not just hear it this morning, but to know it and to, to take it in and to respond. Father, I do pray that You would continue Your good work of shaping us individually and as a church. Please make us merciful. Please, God, give us compassion. Let us be people of grace and forgiveness. Help us to be thoughtful about our, the condition of our own thought, uh, hearts. And God, I pray that we would have strong convictions about actually obeying and, and, and following and responding to Your Word. So Lord, we love You as we leave this place singing the praise and lifting high the name of Jesus Christ. We just ask that You would be glorified well. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. Amen.